Welcome to Succession Stories, insights for next generation entrepreneurs. I'm Lori Barkman. I've spent my career bringing an entrepreneurial approach to mature companies struggling with change. As an outside executive of a third generation, 120 year old company, I was part of a long-term succession plan. Now I work with entrepreneurs, privately held companies and family businesses to develop innovations that create enterprise value and transition plans to achieve their long-term goals. On this podcast, listen in while I talk with entrepreneurs who are driving innovation and culture change. I speak with owners who successfully transitioned their company and others who experienced disappointment along the way. Guests also include experts in multi-generational businesses and entrepreneurship. If you are a next-generation entrepreneur looking for inspiration to grow and thrive, or an owner who can't figure out the best way to transition their closely held company, this podcast is for you. Subscribe to our newsletter for more resources to build value in your business. Visit small.big.com. That's small.big.com and sign up today. Most of us get a glimpse into the world of complex business families by watching shows like Succession and Dallas. Josh Barron, co-founder and partner at Banyan Global, has had a front row seat to some of the world's leading family enterprises and how those companies make difficult decisions during transition. Josh talked about his new book that he's co-authored and published with the Harvard Business Review called How to Build and Sustain a Successful Enduring Enterprise. Listen in as Josh shares the five critical aspects of ownership, influencing whether the company will have a successful transition to the next generation or not. Josh Barron, good morning, and thanks so much for coming on Succession Stories. I was really excited you had reached out to talk to me because you've written a really interesting new book. And I loved how you thought Succession Stories would be a great place to talk about it. And I totally agree. So I wanted to welcome you to the show. Why don't we begin with you telling us a little bit about you and your firm, Banyan Global? Sure. Well, Lori, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Looking forward to this conversation with you. So yeah, my name is Josh Barron. I am a partner and co-founder of a firm called Banyan Global. And we work with some leading family businesses around the world, some who have operating companies, many who have family offices or family foundations, have shared property, basically at the intersection of families that own things of value together and are thinking about how to pass those across generations. And I've been doing this work with family enterprises for almost 15 years. And before that, I was a strategy consultant with Bain & Company. So working with large public companies and so on on their, on their strategies, and then with a spinoff of Bain called BridgeBand that works with large foundations and, and nonprofit organizations. And you know, like many people that have found their way into this space, I, I didn't know that there was a career advising family businesses. I, like many people, you know, family businesses run through my own personal family history. So shaping a lot of, of, of sort of where we've lived and where we've come from and so many important parts of of our lives. But I really found this work by accident. And now that I have, I can't imagine doing anything else. So in addition to my day job, I also teach at Columbia Business School classes in how to manage a family business and also uh, in managing conflict in family businesses. That's really a broad description of your background. I want to go back to a couple of things you just talked about, because I think for many people, you know, on this show, especially we talk about, is there an entrepreneurial gene 
And you mentioned that family businesses are in your background. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So one of the family stories of Laura, so my back in the 1850s, my family had general stores in the mountain towns of Colorado. And my great-great-grandfather, like many people, was frustrated with his parents and uh, didn't want that life for himself. And so basically had a conversation with his parents that the, the gist of was he said, I'm leaving. And they said, well, where are you going to go? And so he just pulled out a map, pointed to a place, and it was Seattle, Washington. And so he basically moved out there. He started a furniture business that my grandfather ultimately came in. And my, my dad actually tells a story of going into the office when he was a kid. And his, his, his grandfather had set up a little desk for him. And, if, and he basically said, well, I had the little desk. And then my father had like the medium desk. And then my grandfather, you know, my grandfather had the big desk to make it clear that he was the one that was in charge. And so ultimately, my, my grandfather sold that furniture store and, and did some projects. And my dad had his own career in law. And then towards the end of it, my grandfather said, look, I need, son, I need help. And I need you to come back and, and help me out with this project. And so very late in life, they actually work together in this kind of family business. And so, you know, all these dimensions, and I think everyone who does, if you're not part of a family business, I struggle to find people that don't have one, you know, one step away or two steps away in your history, and they've shaped so many different aspects of our lives. Absolutely. And how did you, as an entrepreneur, create Banyan Global? How did you specifically, because you have a, a partner in the firm, correct? And how did the two of you come together and decide on, this is what we want to do? Yeah, it's actually, we're a group of partners, you know, and we actually came from one of the sort of the first firms in the family business advisory space, which came out of the Harvard program originally. And then about a little over eight years ago, we decided uh, that we wanted to form our own firm. And like many entrepreneurial stories, it starts with really having an idea that is a little bit different and you're really wanting to create something something that is distinct and sort of in our own image. And what we really wanted to do was to create a firm, you know, advising family, family enterprises, but that would itself be set up from the start to be multi-generational in orientation. And so we just really sort of wanted to, to build up a, a firm that, that sort of most of us, my colleagues and I, come from professional service organizations, law firms, consulting firms, accounting firms, really just believe in the value of creating these institutions as opposed to things that were built around a single guru or whatever. And so we really wanted to create that. And we've invested over the last eight years in, in building up the talent, building up our training, everything that's required to build a, build a, a firm that's actually going to last. And you know, thinking about compensation systems, all of those all of those things with that sort of value in mind. And that's really kind of what we've been able to build. Well, that's a nice parallel with your target audience, which are companies that are inherently built to last. There, of course, are transitions in companies and maybe they, they do have a liquidity event, but so many family businesses are passed down to the next generation or earned, I guess it should say, to yeah, the, sure. you know, going on to the next generation. And it's probably worth mentioning, you know, that the number of family businesses across the world is a huge percentage. It's like 85% of the world's companies are family businesses. And in the U.S., I understand from, and this is data from the Family Enterprise USA organization, sure. uh, five and a half million in the U.S., which is about 62% of the workforce which is a big, big number. Yes, and you know, huge. some people have asked me, oh, Lori, have you created the show, you know, your podcast because of the show Succession? 
And of course, it's a great show. I'm sure you yeah. watch it too. Yeah, <laughs> I love sure, the show. Absolutely. Yeah. And it did have something to do with it, of course, because I just have been fascinated with transitions and how they happen. And, and for me personally, I've worked in you know small, nimble, high growth companies. I've worked in large publicly traded companies, and then I worked in a third generation company. And so I kind of have seen this whole range and across sure. it all is transition. And I think that's really the focus of today because you've written a book that talks about family businesses and ownership and what do those yes. things mean and essentially creating or running these companies where there's lasting value. And yeah. so let's talk about the book. What is the book called and what was the inspiration behind it? Sure. So the book is called Family Business Handbook. It's through Harvard Business Review. And kind of the title is How to Build and Sustain a Successful Enduring Enterprise. And so it's it's part of a series that Harvard Business Review has called Handbooks. They have one for management, leadership, entrepreneurship. It's kind of intended to be sort of an everything you need to know. Of course, there's no one book that can tell you everything you need to know. But it's very much intended to be a kind of practical guide to working through some of the critical issues that come with being part of a family business. And I think at the end of the day, the reason why my colleague Rob Lockenauer and I wrote it with support and, and guidance and help from the rest of our firm is that we've been doing this work out in the field for you know a long period of time and just believe that there are things that, that we've collectively learned in, in working with families that will be of real benefit to others. And of course, we have a growing and successful consulting practice, but we're still touching a very small percentage of families. And that's just, the, that will always be the case. Given the numbers that you said, we'll, we'll never be able to, to work with any, anything more than a small slice of those. And really the motivation behind the book was how do we how do we put something together that can be broadly helpful to a sector that we really believe in? I mean, you, you mentioned the, the data, but I, I really do believe that, you know, of course, family businesses can go wrong. Those are the stories that make for great headlines and TV shows, whether it's Succession or Dynasty in Dallas before it, you know, great, great dramas. And and right. some of the, the some truer than life kind of you know, stuff you couldn't make up that happens in a family business. But Below that kind of veneer of drama and conflict and infighting are these companies that are the, the lifeblood and the backbone of their communities. And data proves this. My experience certainly shows this. They are better employers. They're better corporate citizens. All the stuff we hear about companies being more responsible, they do this because, they, you know, because their name's on the door, because they really care about their companies, their employees, their communities. And so we really, the motivation behind the book was really to help and further support this critical sector part of our of all of our communities globally. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot to that, obviously, to dive into. Why don't we get started and talk about the heart of the book? Sure. And the core of it, I think you're calling the five rights framework. Yes. So there's a lot to talk about probably within the five rights. So let's go through each yeah. of them. And as we do that, I think to the ability you can sort of share some of these stories that you've seen from your experience would be really interesting. So yeah. what's the first core right? Yeah. Oh, and maybe just before diving in, just a quick context. I think you mentioned this when you when we were start when we started to talk about the book. You used a really important word to us and is really kind of in some ways the central word of the book, which is ownership. Because that's really the, the I would say the foundation of our practice and of this book is about the importance of ownership. And you know, I teach at a business school, 
we don't teach ownership. We teach management. We teach a little bit of corporate governance. Ownership is not something that we talk so much about, certainly in the business community. And a lot of that is because the way that we think about businesses are through the lens of public companies, where it's the CEO. The, you know, This is the person that has all the power and the control. And, and maybe there's a board, but sometimes it's the board chair also. But the, the owners don't really do much. You know, They trade shares on apps or put their money in Vanguard or Fidelity. Maybe you'll attend an annual meeting. Probably not. You might sign a proxy statement. And you probably won't. You know, other than the occasional kind of activist, you know, challenge, owners of these kinds of businesses don't do much. And that's totally different in a family business where the owners are a small group of people, maybe even a couple hundred, you know, in some of the ones we've worked with. But still, you can get everyone in a room these days, a virtual room, but you can actually understand it and, and have contact and connection to this business. It's not just something you trade. It's something that you are very much connected to. And in that setting, ownership is incredibly powerful because the owners of a business or any asset, think of your home, your car, you have rights. And by that, we mean you have the ability to do things that no one else does, right? And that gives you through these rights, and we'll talk about the, the kind of five core rights that family business owners have, through those rights, you can influence almost everything of importance about a family business. And that's really why we focus on, on ownership as a critical determinant of the success or failure of family businesses over the long term. Yeah, um, in terms matter, I'm glad you brought this up because I was going to ask you this question. And so maybe this is a good place for it. Is, sure. What is the difference? Do you see a difference between when people describe themselves and if they describe themselves as a business owner or as the owner of a business, do you think there's a difference? Well, I mean, it might be in the sense that one of those feels more active and the other a little bit more passive. An owner of a business kind of strikes me as someone who's sort of taken a little bit more of a sense of, of ownership of, of like, you know, I'm, I'm in the driver's seat here where a business owner sounds a bit more passive. I do think that more broadly, there's when we talk about ownership, we're using it in the broadest sense. And, and certainly in the U.S., you know, where we have these, you know, tax, estate tax rules and so on, um, ownership can mean lots of different things. If, if the business gets put into a trust, you know, the owners are, are trustees or beneficiaries and they have different roles. So we're talking about ownership in the, in the broadest and most collective sense of a group of owners who have the ability to do these things, but but I actually think it's what you've hit on is an important point, which is sometimes people do think of, you know, I'm I'm really in the driver's seat as an owner. And other times people think, well, I'm an owner, but that doesn't mean I get I don't get to do very much either. And it's like sort of something happening to me as opposed to something I'm I'm directing. And I think part of what our our mission is to say, like, you know, understand that even if you are not actively working in the business, you know, you have an important role to play if you're an owner of that company. Definitely, definitely. Okay, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So when you sat down to put the book together, was it difficult to come up with the context of how to organize it? There's so much information here from your and your collective team's experience. How yeah. did you decide what was most important from a thematic standpoint? It's a great question. And the book is really broken up into three core sections. One is sort of understanding how family businesses work. And we kind of talk about how to decode, how to understand what's happening in a family business in the first section uh, about the power of ownership, because it's something that isn't necessarily as, as clear and talked about. 
And then the second section really goes into these five rights. And that, you know, that was in some ways the easiest part to structure because that's really the core of our practice as it's evolved over the last eight to 10 years in particular with Banyan. Um, and so, you know, the, that really has emerged from, from our work and knowing that these are the topics that are most critical to work on for family businesses to, to succeed and, and to last across time. And then the last section was, was a bit of a, not to say a grab bag, but basically these are critical issues that we see people facing that are a little bit kind of more of a deeper dive. And so there's one on conflict, um, you know, one on different disruptions that happen in a, on the family and how to, how to try to manage some of those things. Um, family employment, which is a huge topic in, in, in family businesses, um, family offices. So topics like, like that, that are, you know, I would say that we could have added, we had two or three others that we, we had to cut for space reasons of other kinds of topics, but, but those are the ones that we see kind of the challenges that family businesses are wrestling um, more and more. And our hope is that as a reader, you can both read through it, you know, the whole thing start to finish, I hope. But then as you're dealing with a particular challenge, you can just sort of pull up the table of contents, go to that, and hopefully have some practical advice and perspectives on, on how to work through one of those topics. Yeah. And people who listen to this show, it's a mix. We certainly have people who listen who are in family businesses. And we also have people who have founded companies sure. and inherently might be creating their own family business. I had yes. one guest on the show. She co-founded it with her sister and her brother now works in it with them. So they technically are first generation, but they yes. they are envisioning this might continue. I also have interviewed a company that has 10 generations and that was a really fun discussion. Sure. Yeah. Really very interesting. And every company is different, of course. And I think for, I guess, anyone listening and trying to understand how this may help them with their business, whether you are quote unquote, a family business or not, if yeah. you are not publicly traded and you're privately held, it's about ownership and control. And, and as you said, really deciding how this business, which is for a lot of people, their largest asset, how are they curating Absolutely. this asset? How are they growing enterprise value? And then at some point in the future, determining if they're going to transition because it's only a matter of when, right? We're human, so we're not on this earth forever. <laughs> right, right. And so we essentially, this is what I talk about with clients is regardless of how or when, we know it's going to happen. So we need to start planning for that. And I think you and I are much in alignment on that point. In terms of starting a conversation though, for people listening, you know, what's a great place to start? Maybe we could start with, let's talk about these five core rights because I think sure. there's so much in them that people can really relate. Why don't we Great. go through those? And <laughs> I'm sure I will probe and we'll find other directions to go. But why don't we describe, what if you can describe what the five rights are and we'll Absolutely. go from there. Great, so uh, you know the five, the five rights are design, decide, value, inform, and transfer. And so we'll just start with the first one, which is design. And when we talk about what we mean by design is that as an owner of a business, you get to give it its basic shape. So if you think, you know, to the analogy of sort of building a house, you know, how many, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, like what's the, what's the basic architecture of, of your family business? And this is a choice that the owners of a company uh, get to make. And, and inside that are sort of some core decision points that you're having to face. So one of them is, 
what's the scope of your family enterprise? You know, for some, it's the, the business, right? Others want to also have, they have shared philanthropy, uh, shared investments, other things together. And so deciding how much of an overlap do you want to have and what's the definition? And you mentioned founders and, and that's sort of a lot of this, a lot of these decisions happen in that founding generation where they make a decision about what are we going to pass down? What's the next, what's going to be sort of the, the basis of this, of this family enterprise. And I'm thinking of one, one founder that we worked with, uh, actually two brothers that had built a very successful company, also had a lot of, that had generated both, you know, cat, you know, money that they could invest, but a lot of focus on philanthropy in the family. And so one of the conversations that they had was, first of all, do we want this to be a shared family business that we pass down? Um, or does one branch of it going to take it and the other will, will exit? Um, do we want it to be just a business or do we want to have share, a shared family foundation, um, shared family investment pool? And what they decided was that they wanted a kind of a shared family business that would go through you know, both brothers and their families, but everything else would be outside. And they really said, you know, our philanthropic interests are different and our investment preferences are different. So we want to keep those things separate and really focus on our family enterprise being uh, being the business, the, core, the operating company itself. But these are the kinds of decisions that you make over time as the owners, and really the only the owners can make. And once you decide what you have, you have to decide, well, who can own it, right? And since we're talking about family businesses, um, in general, we're saying, well, only descendants, you know, in most families, there's a restriction on who can be an owner of the business. Um, but some actually say, not only do you have to be a descendant, but you have to work in the business. Um, to be an owner, right? Some family businesses require that. Um, other family businesses allow any descendant to be an owner, and there's no right or wrong. There's successful examples of both. And then lastly, once you say, okay, these are this is what we own, this is who the owners are, the last question is, who gets to have control? And in some family businesses, if I own 20% of the shares, I have 20% of the ultimate control. Whereas other family businesses actually place that control in, in one person or a subset of people. And one of the examples we give in the, in the book is Vitamix, which is a successful you know, blender, high-performance blender company. And what they've decided is that the, the ownership, the value of the ownership goes through the descendant lines. So if, you, you know, if your parents were owners, you can be owners and so on. But the CEO actually, according to their shareholder agreement, um, buys a, a super majority of the voting shares of the company, which basically means that they operate by consensus like most families do. But if there's a breakdown in consensus and they need to make a decision, the CEO, who's a family member, gets to make the ultimate call. And there are other businesses that also do that. It's, just, it's a bit like trying to take that founder kind of tradition where the founder has that ultimate say, you know, why do I make this? Why, do we, why are we going to do this? Because I said so, right? And there's some families that try to embed that into the next generation. And again, all these are choices. There's successful businesses in all different directions, um, but it's really important to sort of make these choices consciously and, and figure out what's going to work well for, for your family. So you think that this is mostly happening at the founder stage, Josh, or is this something that evolves over time? Because especially as generations, you know, you get fourth, fifth, you know, the sure. original generation's long gone and yeah. things change and there's more family members and there's more dynamics. Are you seeing that this is part of it? It's a design, but then there's also a redesign? Yes, that's, that's a great point, Lloyd. Absolutely. A lot of it 
is sort of you know set into motion by the founder. But one of the things that we we encourage families to do in every generation is to revisit these choices because sometimes you know I, either there's more opportunity, for example, because your your business has been successful, you have these you know liquid assets outside the business, and there's benefits of of putting them into a family office and forming that together. Um, or, or sometimes the overlap is too much and you need to kind of say, well, okay, let's give each other some more distance, some more independence so that we can make the, what we do have collectively is stronger. Um, or some family businesses actually kind of toggle between different ways of, of, of those kind of different, different structures of ownership where, you know, they, they'll go from having it be only those who are active in the business can be owners and they realize at some point, Actually, the next generation doesn't want to work in the business, and we don't want to sell it. So maybe we have to to change those change those rules. So absolutely, I think a lot of the work of being part of a successful multi generational family business is both understanding your traditions and rules and valuing them, um, but also recognizing that sometimes you've got to make a tough decisions and change some of these foundational elements of your family enterprise so that it can continue to go on into future generations. Yeah, and also for the leadership side, there are closely held companies that don't maybe have the CEO in that generation. They skip sure. a generation, so they bring need to bring in someone from the outside for a period of time. And it was interesting to hear you talk about the supermajority. I guess it, that really depends on the company. My very first guest on Succession Stories was Tony Uphoff from Thomas. And mm -hmm. they are a fourth and fifth generation company, and he was hired in from the outside. And we talked a bit about governance. And certainly on other shows, I've talked with people about governance. Another wonderful example was Shelly Taylor talked about her. She married into the family business and she's very much involved with the family council. Sure. And, and governance comes up from time to time in the context of strategy, also having independent boards of directors or advisors sure. in addition to having a family council. And one of the frameworks that I, I read about in this next one of the rights, which you mentioned was decide. Yes. So we could segue to that because this is really Perfect. about governance and Absolutely. the four room model. I don't know if anyone's heard of that model. I'll, I'll certainly include a link to it in the show notes, but the four room model is very interesting. And I thought if you could explain what is that and why is it important? Absolutely. As you said, this really connects to the, the second right, which is to decide as the owners of a business, you can, you can make literally every decision if you want to. And there are some, you know, some founders or even second, third generation folks that, that still continue to hold on to lots of decisions. Um, but as you grow, as the business grows, as the family grows, um, it becomes important to really think about what do you want to hold on to as the owners of the business and what do you want to delegate? And that, as you said, that gets us into the, the work of governance. And we, we found this, this sort of, as you call it, the four room model to be a really a simple but really effective way of thinking about governance in the family business and going back to the house you know metaphor um, the idea is just like in your house you you do different work you make different kinds of decisions in the kitchen versus the living room um, in, in a family business you have to do different kinds of work and make different kinds of decisions and the, the four main types are are it are these four rooms one is that you, you have the management room which is where you're running the business on a day-to-day -day basis making tons of operational and strategic decisions, people decisions, all those kinds of things. Uh, you have your boardroom, which is where you're, where you're hiring and figuring out who ought to be uh, in, those, in those management leadership seats. You're thinking about the strategy of the business, where are we going over the next three to five years, um, all those kinds of things. 
and and the 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 board then you know also ultimately reports up to the owners in the owner room and the the role of the owners in this structure is to make a relatively small number of really important decisions so things like do we stay private or do we go public um, do we reinvest uh, the, the earnings that we've made back in the business or we do, do we pay them out in dividends are there certain things that we won't do even if they might make us more money so for example uh, there's a family business i know that you know they're in the chemical industry and they can make a lot of money selling their products to cigarette manufacturing companies and they basically said we're not going to do that we're going to take that off the table uh, because it's counter to our values it's only the owners that can kind of set those those broad directions and that's a hierarchy the management you know ultimately reports to the board the board ultimately reports up to up to the owners and then we have the family room which is not part of that kind of business decision making process it kind of goes alongside in our picture those rooms and it's really it's critically important because the role of the family room in a family business is not to make business decisions it's to um you bring the family together to organize to gather and stay connected uh to develop family talent and to create kind of ladders into each of those rooms into management board and kind of owner roles um, and then there's some family assets sometimes families will have a, a vacation house they have to make decisions about together or they'll have a foundation there these are family assets not business assets and you need a space to make them so what we found in our work with family businesses is that it's critical to to be clear on how you're making decisions in all of those four rooms uh, make sure you have the right venues whether that's in family council owner council board of directors um, executive leadership team, and also be clear about how you're making decisions across them. And this is true, even if it's the same people making those decisions. I worked with one family in Southeast Asia where there's, where there's a group of siblings that would have lunch together every day, and their decision making would go everything from very tactical business stuff to, you know, how much your dividend are we going to pay this year to where are we going on family vacation? And what would happen is they just kind of swirl around and around and nothing would really get done. And so part of it was just breaking up their sessions so that we're clear okay we're, we're now we're making management decisions and when we do those by the way we should include some of our non-family folks that are in there right and now we're making vacation decisions this needs to be in the family room and by the way we should include spouses and some of the next generation into that conversation too so even if you don't have this like big family enterprise just being clear on what hats you're wearing who should be involved how are we making those decisions can be a really helpful way of sort of putting some structure to decision-making in a family business. Specifically on the outside independent director yes. board, if they have a board of advisors or a board of directors, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? That's kind of a, a topic for people that they're interested in from the standpoint of what is the role of an independent director in a family company a family business if they are yeah. chosen to join that is it you know sometimes we talk about oh it's how do you even get on one of those boards it's the country club crowd <laughs> and right. and now essentially you know more with you know for financial results as well as sustainability and diversity and inclusion reasons lots of really good valid reasons why the whole way of recruiting to those boards might not be so effective anymore can you talk a little bit about how family companies who are interested in diversifying their boards yeah. how do they approach that sure absolutely um and i will say i really I, I don't like the term best practices much because i think there are very few things that always work for every family but i would say that having when you when your business gets to be a certain size having independent whether they're advisors or formal directors is about as close to a best practice um as i as i found in, in, in our work 
the reason is because they're so useful in, in so many things. Having that outside perspective, changing the nature of the dialogue on, on otherwise the family dynamic that having outside people brings, um, you know, and, and helping to make some tough decisions where, where people that are, you know, when you have a board, when you have a board member, an independent board member, it's usually someone who's at a stage of their career where they're not so worried about getting fired. They don't really need this job, right? It's something they're doing because primarily because they're passionate and they're wanting to help. And so when you're dealing with tough issues like family employment or who should be the next CEO, having people who have who you trust um, and who have wisdom uh, and who don't mind getting thrown out if they, if they if they're a bit controversial can just be so powerful. So I just think I would just really encourage people. Sometimes families worry about losing control. You can always, you know, you, if, if it's not working out, you can always ask them to leave. Um, you know, so it's not like you're actually giving up control over the business. The benefits are just so strong if, if you have the right, the right directors and the right board structure set up. Um, so, but your point is well taken that oftentimes these become like, you know, friends of the founder, friends of the CEO kind of things. And um, sometimes that's a place to start to have some people in the room that you feel comfortable with. But, but so it's really important to, to get beyond uh, those sort of country club friends and other things and to get people who are, are really um, able to bring some independence and, and different perspectives into the board. Um, and how you do that, I mean, I, I've always found it's, it's good to have, think about, you know, uh, two degrees of separation is kind of like a nice way, way to play where it's not someone that you're close friends with, but asking the people that you trust who they trust, right? And trying to get a list from those people uh, together. And oftentimes what I found is that once you do that, um, you might find enough within your within your broader circle to be able to to get a good diverse uh, set of opinions uh, you know for for the board. If you don't, and especially for the larger family businesses, um, some of the families that we've worked with have had a, have had a lot of success with um, using executive recruiters and other kinds of things. They're set up to help you actually go through a process and and find people who are not at all part of your network. And I've seen a lot of success that way. So, but oftentimes it's just a, a question of, of mobilizing and activating your own network in, in a family business. You, you know probably more people than you think you do, especially if you sit down together and just kind of going a bit beyond that, uh, you know, extending the trust circle just by one degree um, can oftentimes get you to some really outstanding board candidates. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the executive recruiter option. I do have another episode where I talk to an executive recruiter and they focus yeah. on family businesses. So I'll, I'll make sure to include that in the show notes as well for people to listen to. So let's go to one of the last rights you mentioned. Well, that sounds sure. bad. Last rights. I didn't mean it that way. Dire, right? yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of tongue in cheek because it's transfer. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe <yes>. it fits. <laughs> it, it, but yeah, um, yeah, so so transfer. And and yeah. this is a show about succession, which as right. I've you know talked about over and over, is really about transition. It's about change. Change is inevitable and change yeah. is going to happen whether you plan for it and embrace it or not. It's going to happen. So why not plan for it? I, I loved yeah. in the HBR article that I that I read, there was a study done regarding family businesses in India and yeah. they put some data behind it, BCG. I don't know if you were involved in the study when you were no, work, working not. there. Yeah. <laughs> and no. I'm sure you're familiar with this study. BCG study found that there was a 28 point difference in market cap growth between companies that had planned for their transition versus yes. companies that had not. Can you speak to that? Sure, and, and this is a, a public companies and it's in India. And, and so, you know, it would take it, take it for what it's worth, but I think it's a really good 
as you said, a good data, put, putting some data behind something that we all know and believe, which is that when you handle these uh, transfers of the, going from one generation to the next in, in a smooth way, then the business gets to kind of keep the momentum and going, uh, keep going. And, and when there's a disjuncture, when you get stuck in that moment, the business can get stuck. And that results in losing innovation, losing vitality, missing out on opportunities to grow. Um, and so this whole moment of how you handle the transition from one generation to the next, so much of long-term success really rides on, on how you how you deal with the choices that come along with that. So I think the, the, the I think the data does a nice job of, of quantifying, at least in those cases, some of the impact of that. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the next generation because as I like to say, when they get the keys, what are they going to do? Yeah. Are they going to continue to do what they've always done or are they going to start to look at things differently and innovate? How do they grow? Someone once said to me, yeah, you don't want to be the spouting whale because the spouting whale gets harpooned. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know if you're a football fan uh, being I in am, Boston. Yes. I'm, I, I think you and I are at opposite ends of the football spectrum here being I'm, I'm in Pittsburgh. <laughs> uh, I'm from little... Denver, a life, lifelong Broncos. Lifelong fan. Denver? Still, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. You're good. You're good. All right. All right, All right. We're good there. But yeah, Patriots comment for anyone listening, <laughs> wondering what I'm talking about. So the point is that I think there are ways to encourage the next generation yeah. to embrace change to listen to their ideas, to mentor them, to be successful. And companies who have a process for that, who appreciate yeah. that, are not only going to keep their legacy going, but they're probably also going to be increasing enterprise value for the descendants and the people who ultimately have a financial stake in it. Yes. And one of the things that's, that struck me, I read was, transition is a process, not an event. Yeah. And I wholeheartedly agree. And that's what I talk about with with my clients and helping them grow their business to the point where they have options for transition. And so sure. I wanted to hone in on that in terms of the next generation. What do you think about most when you talk about this area of transfer? Yeah. Well, what I found is that it, when people are thinking about transitioning a business from one generation to the next, too often there's a singular focus on finding the one, right? Who's going to be the next CEO? And if we figure that out, then our work is done, and um, and you know all all's gonna go all's gonna go well. And um, I think there's some problems in that. You know, a few that maybe to highlight. First of all, is that even if you find the next CEO, it's understanding that that person's role is going to be very different than the one that the current CEO is oper is sort of sitting into. I was just talking with a family about this the the other day. Um, there are two two brothers in the second generation, a larger group in the next generation. Um, you know, they had a way of running the business as, you know, they took turns, basically, one was CEO, then the other was the CEO. Um, they were able to run the business in a very collaborative, co collaborative way. There were just two of them. Decisions were pretty easy. Um, the next CEO is going to be part of a, a larger group and a larger business, too. Um, the role of that CEO is going to be less on just making the single decisions and more about building consensus, both within the family, um, you know, both in the team and the executive team and part of the broader group. So it's a different role. And some, sometimes you're looking for a different skill set. It's not necessarily sort of the person that's just going to be the decisive business builder. Oftentimes it's going to be the person who's really good at developing systems and, you know, keeping people informed and really a great communicator. So it's, it's a different kind of role. It's a different, you know, different nature of that. And trying to make sure that both you're thinking about what that person looks like, but also how are you putting in place the, 
the, the governance structures and processes around that person so that they can actually be successful because it will be different. And, and a lot of that means not just focusing on the current, who's going to be the CEO, but who's going to be on the board, right? Who's, you know, how are you going to make decisions as owners? Do you need an owner council? Do you need a family council? How are all those things going to work together to really position that person for success? Um, and then making sure that that next generation, because it's probably not just one person, that they're prepared for the different roles that they're going to play. And as I said, you know, at the beginning, even though even those that may not be in the business at all day to day are going to be playing critical in the being playing a critical role in this owner in this owner room and making sure that they're prepared to step in and both having the the individual, you know, the understanding of finance and accounting. You don't have to be fluent, but you have to understand the basics of of all those things and be able to work together because a family business is a team sport. Like you have to be willing to and able to, to work on your communication, work on that dialogue, work on making tough decisions together. So all of those things I think and, and more are part of making a successful transition happen. It's not just about saying, okay, we've got the next CEO and we're ready to go and, and, and the work is done. I can see that conflict is a big part of perhaps why clients start working with you. Maybe they mm. have a problem and they need an independent advisory group to help them work through something. Do you find that that's more of a reason how Banyan Global gets involved or is it the opposite where these are firms that are just extremely proactive and everything's working swimmingly well and they just wanna to get to the next level, whatever that next level is, or is it somewhere uh. in the middle? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I, I, I love the client situations where everything's working well and we're just kind of getting ahead of the game. Uh, as, as one said, we're building the house before it starts raining. Uh, and there's just so many, so many more options you can do when the situation, when everything is, everything is going, business is going well, family's going well. But honestly, I think it's human nature uh, to not work on these things. I think it's human nature not to want to work on, you know, generational transition because it involves things like you said, death rights, like mortality, all the stuff that none of us want to talk about. Right. Um, and, and it's a distraction from the day-to-day -day operation of the business. And, and most of us are not going to want to work on these things until, until we have to. And I think, um, for us, you know, what, what, what we found, what we find is that sometimes it's sort of like the things are blowing up and, someone needs to come in and sort of put everyone in their corner and, and sort of start to do some sort of mediation. More often than not, it's because things are starting to bubble up and people are feeling something internally that there are some issues that we, we, need to, we need to work on that no one's really talking about. And we don't know how to talk about them. And in this class I teach on managing conflict, one of the things we talk about is that conflict is a Goldilocks problem. It's that too little conflict is actually just as much of a problem as too much conflict. And although, we, the too much conflict stories, those are the ones in, in Succession and, and all those shows, those make for the best drama. Most families, at least that I've seen in, in my experience, are actually on the too little conflict side, that they're, they're, they're conditioned not to argue about things because they'll say it's not worth ruining Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever the holiday is and over this decision. We have to get along as a family. That means not having any conflict. And so, but of course there are differences. Differences are real, they're inevitable. You know, conflict of interest is, is just a part of being in a family. And so a lot of our work is, is sort of families that are realizing that there are issues that are starting to, to bubble up. They haven't probably resulted in a, in a, in a, in a actual, you know, fight or feud yet, uh, but people are feeling something and they're realizing that they need to actually 
get some of these things out on the table, make some decisions, get themselves back on track. And that's a lot of the motivation for the, for the work we do. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Tell us about experiences where the family business decided that they no longer wanted to go forward as the family Whatever that major transition was in ownership, it could be sure. a variety of things, whether they sure. liquidated or sold to a third party or decided to go public and they no longer had ownership control. Absolutely. I've seen actually all of those things where companies have you know, gone, gone public, where, they, where they've sold and um, gone their separate ways, or when they've sold and actually used the, the business sale to create a new, a new family enterprise. Um, and you know, sometimes it's just the the offer you can't refuse that comes out of, you know, left field. And, and they're just say, look, you know, w- we couldn't run this business. If someone's willing to pay so much for it that, um, you know, that we couldn't uh, possibly justify that um, to justify saying no to it. And, and I think when that happens, it just, it creates a new set of choices. It basically, and the, the, basically what do you want to do with that? And I've seen everything from some families that will sell the business and say, well, that was a great experience, but we're kind of exhausted by being in business together. Or maybe that was even one of the reasons why we, we, we wanted to sell the, the business. And so we're just going to each go our own way. You know, I'm going to take my share and you're going to take your share. We're just going to, you know, we'll be a family, but not a family in business together anymore. Um, one of the ones I'm working with recently, they, they sort of went a different direction where they sold the business, you know, in part because they didn't have the right group willing to, to sort of run it in the next generation. Partly they just got a great offer. Um, and, but they're creating a family office. So they're creating a, their own kind of family investment company um, that, that they'll put a big chunk of that money into. And then they'll go and, and buy businesses, invest in assets, and, and build, basically building a whole infrastructure around it. So um, uh, you know, others that have created family foundations that kind of then serve as the glue to keep the family together. So um, what's interesting is that it doesn't necessarily mean the end of being a, a family in business together. It may be just a a reimagining or sort of a, a whole new way of doing it, um, of finding other things that you want to do. And those are, uh, those are really interesting moments for families to, to work with families on, so advising them through those, those big choices. I can see also that being very emotional where they've let go of 100%. this heirloom in a way, if they've had that yeah. transition. Do you also work with clients on kind of the emotional side of letting go? I think it actually sometimes sneaks up on people, Lori. I think they they don't realize until after the fact that yes, it was a good financial decision, but um, both there's a sense of loss, um, and you know it's it can be a, it can be a really tough thing, especially when you when you have this business that feels like you know another member of the family, um, and you you lose it, and you see with someone else not taking care of it as well as as well as you do. It's like when you your family. It's like when you go to your old neighborhood and you see the house you grew up and grew up in and it's totally, you know, weeds are everywhere. The paint's like, it just gives you this like sense of, I can't believe that this thing that's so meaningful in my mind is now, is now not doing so well, except of course it involves employees and all that kind of stuff. So the feelings are very heightened. And so a couple things, one is that you want to be careful about a sale of a business and making sure that you're thinking through not just the financial implications, but all these other things and how you might feel about it. Because I have seen people that regret those decisions. And they say, I've got this money, but you know, I've lost my sense of identity and meaning um, and this business. And so you want to be really careful and really thinking through the implications, especially if you sell to a private equity firm. Because one thing you know for sure is that someone they're not going to be the last owner. They're going to sell to someone else. 
that's the nature of their business model. So a lot of the family business you know, owners out there are getting these calls by private equity firms. Just go in with your eyes open. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it, but just to really think through the long-term consequences. So, but if you do go through with a sale, and of course it's the right decision for, for many, really think about how are you gonna create that, that sense of connection um, of, of purpose you know, and meaning in your life after that, right? And what is that gonna be? Is it gonna be creating, you know, it's an investment platform where you're gonna invest in other companies because you really like that, or whether it's gonna be a philanthropic you know, endeavor where you're gonna create that sense of meaning and togetherness through something else or whatever it is. But, but just to really be thoughtful about, you know, how you're, re if, if that sense of meaning that you're losing, you're sort of concerned about that, just to really think about how can you recreate that through another means, even as that first legacy business goes away. I think that's a great piece of insight. And I concur. I would say people who are happy in their next tend to be pulled into something that they're excited about as opposed to feeling pushed out. So yeah. certainly if you're in the driver's seat and you're and you're working on this sale or transaction, most likely you're, you know, you're in the heat of the moment. You want to get the deal done, right? Maybe there's even deal fatigue. And as you right. go through it, you're going through the motions. It's very transactional mechanics. You don't really give yourself the time to sort of think about the implications, especially if your name's on the door. Yes. And now, you know, yeah, the identity part is really important, I think. And so in that next phase of what are they going to do, having something that they're excited about and that fits their interests, like you mentioned, whether it's philanthropy and giving back, including the, the family and creating a family office and doing investments, all of those things are wonderful. Some people decide to start another company. Some people decide Absolutely. to buy a company or companies. <laughs> Maybe they yeah. buy an island and they want to go live <laughs> on an island, go. whatever that is. Yeah. So yeah, no, I think that's a really great point. And maybe that's a, a, a good place to start to kind of wind down here. The And I always love to ask guests if they have a favorite quote or mantra. You teach, you teach at Columbia, you talk to a lot of students and you talk to a lot of people in, in family businesses. What comes to mind around that, either entrepreneurship or leadership or something specific to family businesses that you could share as a, a lasting mantra? Well, I, I think maybe maybe I'll share like a, a negative one because this is the one that I hear probably most commonly in class and that we spend a lot of time um, trying to, I guess, rebut is this sort of three generation idea that the first generation builds it, the second generation um, sort of rests on their laurels, and by the third generation, the family's poor again. Um, this is probably my least favorite idea. It's probably one of the most common things that people know about in family business. And it's also my least favorite one, because I think, first of all, it's not really supported by the data if you look at it. Um, yes, most family businesses won't make it to, through the third or the fourth generation, but all that's really telling you is that making a business last for 90 years is hard. And I don't think that's really a big insight. Um, what we know from looking around the world at long lasting businesses is that most of them are family owned. Um, and, you know, what I see and what really frustrates me about this saying is it creates almost like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy where that, you know, I've actually had a number of third generation people who, in the, when I ask them to introduce them in themselves in class, they'll say, well, you know, here's my name and I'm from this place. And I'm the third generation. So I'm going to screw up this business. Right. And so it becomes this sort of mythology um, that I think is really unhelpful because it's it suggests that family businesses are somehow more fragile um, than other businesses, which I think is just not true. Um, and it suggests that somehow the third generation or the you know fourth generation are the ones that are going to destroy it, which is also not true because I can 
tell you that so many business success stories are actually not these founder create something amazing and then the third generation, second, third generation do nothing. So many great business success stories are the first generation create something relatively small. The second generation or third or fourth generation takes that platform and then just blows it up. You know, even like take succession the, the, as an example, it's based on the Murdochs, you know, loosely or not too loosely, depending on what you're following. Uh, that's, you know, Rupert Murdoch didn't start that business. He took his father's, you know, newspaper business in Australia and built it into a global empire. And so that's a saying that I hear a lot. You know, it's it's sort of pervasive in the field. If, I, if there's one thing people know about family businesses, oftentimes it's that. And I just find it to be such an unhelpful uh, way of looking at the world. So um, I guess I'll get down from my soapbox. But that's that's something that I've, I've heard a lot and, and I guess frustrates me about this field. Family businesses are, are not more fragile. Um, the next generation is not destined to blow it up. If you, if you do the work and you're willing to do the work and make the choices and put the effort in, there's no reason you can't have a family business that lasts for generations. Yeah, I totally agree. And that I think that's a wonderful insight. I have heard that saying, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. And yeah, it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy, which doesn't mean it's going to happen. And so, right. yeah, I love how you're sort of changing the mindset. You're educating these folks who, who want to learn about what they could do differently, how to keep their legacy going and growing and innovating. Absolutely. So I love it. Josh, thank you so much for being on the show today. Maybe the very, very last thing here is if people want to learn about you or about the book or about your firm, Banyan Global, how do they find you online? Sure. Uh, so you can, you, can find, uh, you can find the firm on our, our website, banyan.global. Um, you can find me on, on LinkedIn uh, or, or on the website. Uh, the book is uh, available through Amazon and wherever the, the places you buy your books. Um, and I just would welcome anyone that wants to have a conversation or dialogue to, to reach out. Always delighted to, to hear and talk to people about their own experiences. And Lori, thank you so much for, for, first of all, for having me on this program and for the work that you're doing. I think there's so much value in having good, productive you know, conversations about about all these issues that are coming up and taking some of the, the fear and anxiety and really talking about like the how-tos of, of working through succession. So thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for being here. Innovation, transition, growth. Easy to say, but hard to do. If you're an entrepreneur facing these challenges, I get it. I work with businesses from small to big to achieve your vision. Visit smalldotbig.com to learn more. I'd love to connect with you. Subscribe to Succession Stories. And if you enjoy the show, please share a rating and review. Thanks for listening.